They are not just known as transactional, transactional, plug and play, square peg, square hole. They are interesting people. They have opinions. They can talk about everything. I always call it the Renaissance outlook. And we're not all going to be Da Vinci's. But the point is, is that you're an interesting person because you work at it. You're thoughtful. You go behind the scenes. listening to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm pleased to introduce you to my special guest, Doug Bugie. Over the last 32 years, Doug has sold and managed the support for 800 recruitment franchisees in 40 countries who collectively have made over 100,000 placements. As the global marketing director for MRI, Doug opened 90 offices in a single year and increased group revenue from $350 to $600 million. He then came over here to the UK and co-founded Humana International with James Cann and grew that firm to 200 offices in 27 countries before it was subsequently acquired by MRI. Then he went on to become the CEO of Norman Broadbent, then the CEO and president of Antel International, and currently Doug helps already successful executives who want to run their own business to build a search firm as a franchisee of FPC, Fortune Personnel Consultants. In this episode, we're going to talk about the traits of the most successful recruiting firm owners based on the more than 800 that Doug has personally worked with. Hi, Doug. How are you? Mark, I'm great. It was inevitable that we would meet sooner or later. We have 238 shared connections on LinkedIn, so we know a lot of people in common. I'll tell you, when I first heard about you was probably uh, about 11, 12 years ago when I read James Kahn's autobiography, The Real Deal from Brooklyn to Dragon's Den, and he mentions you a bunch of times in that book, and I, I was thinking, hey, I would like to someday talk to this guy, Doug Bugie. So here we are. Thanks for making the time for this. It's my pleasure. Truly, truly and completely. No problem. So I've been doing my research. I always do a lot of preparation for these interviews and reading a list of your accomplishments, which are many because you've been in the business for 32 years. I've been in for 22 years. The one that jumped out at me, Doug, is in 32 years, you have sold, managed, and supported 800 recruitment franchises in 40 countries who've collectively made over 100,000 placements. That's quite a legacy. I don't know where you're getting your uh, information. It's probably slightly dated. Well, it is slightly dated because it's. I'm just in. I'm going into my 36th year now. Wow. And I think 100,000 would be a hard number that the franchise owners, once trained and supported have uh they filled that many jobs in the I, I wish I could somehow get people to wrap their heads around it who are looking at you know buying a franchise now because it's such a big number it's almost unfathomable. It is uh, and the fees from those jobs would easily, easily uh be in the two billion dollar range. It's quite cool that you've had an impact indirectly on a hundred thousand companies and 100,000 individuals who were furthering their career through the franchises that you were representing. So that's super cool. Your listeners would probably be, well, they may not be that surprised at it, but I've never been an active desk level recruiter. I've done everything else, which makes me chicken hearted, right? 
I've, you know, built them, hired, unfortunately had to let people go. I've done major, major pitches. What even the pitch document was 25,000 pounds at one point with Vodafone. I remember so well, managed and developed consultancies within businesses, large scale recruiting in the permanent area, a la Alexander Mann. And when I have a chance to talk about the industry, I really don't talk about it in a tactical way, though. I always talk about it around the world as a, we're people, it's a wonderful industry because we're people that can find jobs and situations and opportunities for our candidates where they can do the best work of their lives, where their potential can come into flower. And I don't talk about negotiating the counter offer or when you know you got to let somebody go. I don't, you know, I don't like to talk about those things. I do. I know about them, but I, I usually go with the high road on the candidate side because I do believe that. And I do believe the positive impact our industry can make. Unlike many others, I put it right up there with top level medicine or law, you know, a lawyer who defends somebody and gets an innocent person out of big trouble or a doctor who saves somebody's life. I mean, that's we're not quite that exalted, but we're right up there. I believe that. And then also with companies, you know, we help companies that are competing and they're looking for the edge to be great and to really stand out in their markets and to be successful, profitable and, and good places to work, great places to work. Well, we have an impact on all that, of course. That's what I'm in front of a group. And someone says, well, what is the meaning of this business or its mission or what is what is it all about? These are the things I talk about. And not so much. You can make a lot of money. Uh, you can work from anywhere. You can work from anywhere in the world, any market you want. It's totally portable and virtual. The, the initial investment relative to what you can earn is not that much. I don't know many businesses where you can start it for so little money and make so much money. But those are secondary subjects to me. The big subjects are the impact on companies and people. I 100% agree. Listen, what I'm really interested in is because you've been directly involved in so many different recruitment businesses around the world, 40 countries. What have you observed are some of the key differences between the ones that have done the best and the ones who haven't done as well? You know, I was just talking about in a strategic sense, what impact our business has, but to be good at it, it's uh, sort of the Bill Gates philosophy of uh, span of control. And I think his number was no, a human manager cannot manage and deal with the intricacies of more than about, I think it was 16 people at a time. I could be wrong, but it's not a big number. And I don't think it's over 20 under any circumstances. But my point is that to be effective in the business, you need to have people who are lead from the front kind of personalities and action takers heading up your teams. And you can stack and build and morph those teams, but the teams may aggregately end up being, you know, like an S3, a giant, or a Michael Page, a giant, but a Robert Wallers, a Legis in the United States. But generally speaking, the whole thing is built up. The subatomic structure are teams led by people who don't stand in the back urging their people forward. They lead from the front. And they don't do, it's almost like a military thing. Great leaders in the military are known as people who will, and sometimes to their demise, will take the shots. They'll go, they'll lead the charge. They will do it. And I think that you have to have that kind of attitude, particularly when you're starting one or in your early phases. You can get to be in a business 
when it gets large enough where you can be Napoleon sitting in a sedan chair five miles behind the lines. And that's not because he was a coward, but he knew that's where he could have his best effect. And even Westmoreland said Napoleon's worth two legions just being on the field. One man. So I'm not saying you can't have and don't evolve to an overarching worldview and also an ability to put your hand on the tiller and move the ship with a light touch because the ship is so great, it responds. But a lot of people kind of jump to that conclusion and that vision of what they like to accomplish in the industry. But it's really the nuts and bolts of building those teams with leads from the front people. It's certainly true in franchising. I sell franchises to people sometimes who have enormous prior responsibility. I mean, mind-boggling stuff. One guy was responsible for all the equipment that came back from Iraq, from all the armed services, all of them. And these are the kind of people we talk to sometimes, and many times they're just flat-out successful. A guy called me while we were just on this podcast, this creation of this podcast, who's uh, his, he and his wife are nuclear physicists. They deal with subatomic stuff that happens in manufacturing, where you really have to get it right when you're making pieces that'll go into a submarine and it'll have to withstand enormous pressures, just nothing you'd see on the surface. And if again, you get it wrong, people die. And these people are in charge of manufacturing such things, not the actual turning of the metal, but making sure the metal itself and how it's created and treated works. Well, I sell people franchises like this. I can give you 500 examples. So they're really terrific people, but if they don't, lead from the front and they think somehow they're going to hire two or three people and urge them forward, they're not going to make it. They'll struggle. They'll probably even fail. So I'm really clear with what it takes to win and and succeed in this business when I deal with either people who are building their own through a franchise or if I'm managing an organization, you just got to get out in front of your people. You got to be the first over the horizon. I believe that. I don't think everybody believes that, but I do. Let me explore that further then, Doug. So I agree 100%, by the way, especially in the early stages that the owner needs to build, the owner needs to make placements. And part of that is just to really get the cash coming in to allow any kind of growth to occur. But secondly, is so that by doing the job, they're also teaching the job, right? So anyone in their team is seeing them in action and they're the role model, if you like. But at what point do you think the team is big enough that they would take a non-billing role? It's a good question. And, and, it, and it's, does it, there is not a strict formula like E equals MC squared or something. <laughs> but there is a relative range. Each dynamic of each team is different. But the relative range is 6 to 20 people. Okay. And there are people who enjoy the cut and thrust of recruiting. And they stay with it, even to the point of the the actual search actions they take, the research leading up to the search. Maybe they have a research assistant or two, but they like it. And they also, when they get better at it, they get more efficient. They know where the great people are. It doesn't take them as long to find them. They already have a relationship with them. And they can move faster. And they can make a lot of money because they're more efficient. They can make more placements at a higher level faster than they could when they were in their earlier years. Stands right. the reason. And they keep going because they're own. But when you're small, when you're seven, eight, nine desks, maybe even three or four, 
you know, that's a lot of profit. But the dynamic is you referenced it. It's that coaching role. Now, here's the interesting part. You don't want a business where you're always the top performer. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that the dynamic in the office, the credibility of the leader, the interaction the leader has with people is magnified a lot if the people see the owner or the leader on the team engaged. It makes it easier for them to be trained and to listen, not because the owner or the leader of the team is always right, but just because they know they're in the action and they respect that. Now, for example, the head of um, FPC, this franchise that I represent globally, Jeff Herzog, he has 60 offices, hundreds of people, roughly 25 million in permanent billings, fees billed, and growing nicely. And he's an active executive search consultant and has been for years. He wasn't always the president. His father's the chairman, Ron, Ron Herzog. And Jeff, he made Jeff president a few years ago after Jeff went through the paces of running the Times Square office and building it in New York City. So he didn't just give him the job because he owned the business. Jeff went through the paces. Very wise move. But Jeff still commands enormous respect, not because everybody says, Jeff, what do I do exactly when something happens in the market like X, Y, Z or X, Y, Z, as you guys would say. But they just listen to it because they know he's on the firing line and they know he's dealing with the slings and arrows. And he's managing to balance that with running a fairly substantial executive search business. He commands a lot of respect for that reason. Is it absolutely necessary to be that way? No but it really keeps his edge of the sword sharp and people respect him for that. Interesting. So leading from the front and being active in the business is uh, one of the hallmarks, I guess you could say, of the most successful leaders that you've observed. What would be a couple of other key factors? Well, I think of Mike Brennan, who I may as well keep it close. I mentioned Mike earlier as the leader of uh, CEO of Norman Broadbent. I mentioned Tony Goodwin leader of Antel. I can think of working with James Kahn, as I still do. So those are three really, really successful guys in our industry. All three of them are very well read, and they're exposed to a lot of different business ideas, history, politics, the nuances of arguments, the subtext of everything that is, is always a hell of a lot more complicated than just boiling it down to tweets, and that's not a dig at my president. But I have always found that the leaders in our industry who are really interesting, well-read and thoughtful, I can think of the best guy I ever sold a franchise to in the UK, Mike Shear, and he built a multi-multi-million business in Brighouse, West Yorkshire, where there's more sheep than people. And he would devour two books a month, and heavy books, like Churchill his fall when he was naval secretary, the mistakes he made that led up to the catastrophe at the Dardanelles Straits with Turkey. And he knows that stuff. Now, you don't sit on the phone talking to a company about that or a candidate. Sometimes you do because you get to be friendly with them and you get offline and you talk about other stuff, which, by the way, all the great recruiters and leaders do. They are not just known as transactional, transactional, plug and play, square peg, square hole. They are interesting people. They read the papers or they get it off the internet, but they know what's going on. 
They have opinions, jam them down your throat, but they can talk about everything. I always call it the Renaissance outlook. And we're not all going to be Da Vinci's. But the point is, is that your span of interest, people don't want to look at you as just, you know, I got I got a need, fill my need, bye-bye. You need to be able to develop a human, deeper, intuitive kind of a relationship with somebody. And I don't mean an arrogant senior level executive search retained consultant who thinks that they walk on water sometimes. I don't mean that. I don't mean a air of superiority. I just mean you're an interesting person because you work at it. You're thoughtful. You go behind the scenes. You don't just take knee-jerk reactions on what's going on between China and the U.S. or the soft border or the hard border of, you know, Ireland and Northern Ireland. You don't. But you know more about it. You don't pontificate or opine about it because people don't want to hear it. But you know enough about it when the opportunity comes up to talk about something. You slide a few comments in. Shows you read, shows you're thoughtful, and believe me, people who are the leaders in companies of any consequence, whether they're small or large, are usually pretty interesting people too. They just go beyond the norm. And I think the rec- most recruiters don't go beyond the norm. They don't read enough. They don't think enough. I don't mean they're stupid. I just mean they're so caught up in the action of the battle that they don't stand back and take any time to educate themselves and, and sort of flesh out their intellects because they're in the battle all the time, in the arena. And that's all they talk about. And after work, they talk about it. I see that a lot with younger people. But a younger person who will stand out and, and enrich themselves along the way always, I think, uh, ends up being a bigger player than the person who's just bam, 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 and I'm working to get my Ferrari. <laughs> this is great stuff, Doug. Before I go to my next question, I've got a quick announcement. If you're like me, you tend to listen to podcasts on the move, so it's not practical to write down the ideas you want to action later, and chances are you'll forget. That's why I've gone to extra effort and expense to capture those key insights for you. If you'd like to receive the full transcript of this recording, plus a one-page action sheet, which is a concise summary of the top three to five insights from this episode, then you can get both of those resources for free. All you need to do is visit recruitmentcoach.com forward slash podcast and fill out the opt-in form. You'll get access to a ton of free tools and resources, including the transcript and the action guide for each episode. And by the way, that includes past episodes you might have missed and future episodes too. So go ahead and sign up for free now at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash podcast. So far, we've got leads from the front is thoughtful and has a renaissance mindset let's get one more if you can think of one more common factor well our business the other biggie and i think this is why women generally speaking and i i can't you can't use it's just a trite expression but pound for pound on a weighted basis women tend to be better at this business than men it's just like it's kind of weird that the great chefs of the world, most of them are men. You'd think, well, they'd be women. Women are in the kitchen. Well, they're not. And, and somehow men have ascended in that profession. I think the same thing for other reasons has happened in executive recruiting and in recruiting in general. The glass ceiling is by definition removed because it's based on performance. So a woman doesn't have to hit her head on the glass ceiling. She just goes right through it. 
in most cases. There's opportunity for them. But I think the reason that they're more successful, and this is decades of interacting and training and working with, and I've worked for a, a woman, I've managed women. They're better listeners. They let their emotional side connect easier than men. They don't lead from the front with their egos like a lot of men do. Their emotional intelligence generally is higher. And emotional intelligence in our field is very, very important. It's the one big bulwark that separates us from IBM's Watson just rolling right over all of us. <laughs> right. It's the right. human factor. And I do mean human. It's the ability to read between the lines, ask great questions, and stop and listen to the answers. As the old saying, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. Absolutely. And women tend to be better at that. Men want to, a lot of times in recruiting, especially when you get into highly specialized areas, people forget. And I would say if I had to somehow, if I was omnipresent and omniscient, and I could tell and hear every conversation going on in the world simultaneously right now, you'd have more men trying to display to the client or candidate how much they know and how much of a command they have of their sector or niche and of what they do, where the women, even if they have the same or more command or understanding, are going to let the customer, the client or the candidate, both in the transaction and in the overall ongoing relationship, they're going to ask them the questions, shut up and listen to the responses and thoughtfully act on it, where the guy is still talking through the deal. He's talking him right, he's talking himself right through the deal and not listening enough. Emotional intelligence is, uh, is key. And that was a good explanation of that. Doug, because you've been in the business 36 years and you know, in that time it's changed drastically and, and the speed of change, you know, even just the last five years, it's changed a lot. What do you think are the biggest changes that have affected the industry recently? And what do you see being the future for the recruitment industry? Well, I think the technology angle is, the, it, well, the industry's grown a lot in the last decade. Just sheer uh, numbers of participants to the point where the UK, it might even be, you could still stand out, but it's, it's sort of an oversold market. It's the lowest fee market of any major economy. The client perceives they've got almost unlimited choice. Now, they're wrong because they don't get you know, consultants, recruiters who are, as I've described, um, and that is the job of that company, the firm, to somehow put forth that, that we aren't the same, but everybody says that. Everybody says they're not the same. You know, everybody says, I've got the technology, and then you've got the pure technology place that say, I am the technology, indeed, zip recruiter and such. And they're even starting to talk in their commercials like search consultants. We will give you a short list. We will not waste your time. We will not just troll the seeds of data and, and throw resumes at you, CVs at you. They're trying to separate themselves. But what I've seen happen is the interplay and the fusion of technology and recruitment. There's a road to the left, and it's almost defined by income. Roughly, if you look at a global number, anything under 100,000, where it is a more of a plug and play kind of a position, data mining is good. And then, you know, then you'll have the human factor at the end to finalize the deal. But a lot of it is just massively crunching 
who's out there, what they're doing, where they are. And there isn't the need for the emotional intelligence or the nuance I'm talking about or the knowledge of ethos, culture, strategy. You're not dealing with ethos, culture, strategy when you're hiring somebody who's making 60 grand, unless maybe you're a very small business and that's a big part of our market. So it's a big if or but here. A 60,000 person could be a big hire for somebody just growing and they do need to fit in or change the culture, the ethos, and the strategy. But I'm talking in the bigger picture, the divide is roughly 100,000 pounds, dollars, euro. And the higher you go, but I don't mean to the hundreds and hundreds of thousands or million dollar positions. I'm talking about where I live anyway, is the, you know, 80 to 250, 80 to 300. Expensive people, big investments, have to be people who can move the needle, have to be able to hit the ground running, change agents, bring a lot of momentum with them. That's why we earn 20, 30, 40, 50,000 pound dollar euro fees. And that is not a replaceable element. A lot of the things it takes to get those kind of people, particularly now in America where you've got almost full employment, so you have to recruit them. But really even, you can almost name your market, and I've worked in 40, and those essentials don't change. If you're looking for somebody and you don't have the capacity somehow to find that somebody yourself internally or using your own devices or using internal recruiters, which frequently are not a renaissance type, they're not unintelligent, they just don't have to be that way. So the future is bright because those who are investing in themselves to educate themselves outside of the just pure business realm and the transactional tactics and strategies it takes to be effective, even to be effective trying to market oneself digitally and all the different angles there are on that, those who rise above will, I don't say this arrogantly even to the slightest, but they will be like the people I've described in this podcast. And they will rise above and the industry has a bright future because of that. Now, where the industry is somewhat dumbed down is that particularly the younger people coming into it are compressed in terms of amount of words they will use to explain something or how they write or how they communicate via Twitter, Instagram, etc. I'm not some old dinosaur that says we've lost our ability to be liberal arts people. And oh boy, those were the days where people actually understood their history when they were talking about company and damn it, we ought to go back to those old days. But it's just a fact that the art of presentation, a weighing up factors, convincing people to uh, uh, join a vision, creating a vision in the first place, understanding the underlying currents of a company's ethos, strategy, and where they're going. You, that is nuance that if you can deal with it, you are going to stand out. If you're just going to go through the motions and make a living and make 60, 70, 80 grand a year and plug and play, that's okay. There's a giant market for that. It's billions. But that's just not the world from a satisfaction standpoint i want to be in or normally the people who join any organization that i'm leading or i'm representing and selling for they don't want to be in that world that's a very uninteresting world to me and i'm not putting it down but it really is it's almost just like being on a manufacturing assembly line and not and doing the same thing and companies see this. They look at the industry and the supply of people with certain income ranges, usually below about 80, as a commodity. And especially in the UK, that beats up fees. 
because they just think it's worth 10 grand and that's it. It's worth seven grand. It's worth 14 grand. And they don't, the value, they don't see the added value. And a lot of times there isn't much of it. It's basically just data mining, crunching it down and getting a reasonable shortlist and putting them out there. Or even worse, putting them out there using just information like, you know, LinkedIn resumes or summaries, blah, blah, blah. And people really get sick of that. So if a recruiter can stand out and ask the right questions, listen, and get under the skin of their clients and candidates deeply, they're going to end up making more money and being more successful and probably almost certainly happier and more fulfilled as professionals. Well said. Well said. Thanks, Doug. Just picking up on the point you made regarding the commoditization of the industry, particularly in the UK, and it being a low fee market because clients perceive it as there being very little value add. And, uh, you know, it's a sort of race to the bottom. Is this the recruiter's fault? Have we done this to ourselves as an industry? Or is it a reflection of clients putting us in this position, for example, where they don't let us talk to the hiring authority or they insist on using multiple you know, agencies and therefore they diminish the service that they can receive in that sort of transactional? That's a thoughtful question and it's not an easy one to answer. I would say, look, there's an inevitable, there's a giant role and it's billions and billions of whatever currency you want to talk about globally where technology helps link up companies and people. You can't dismiss it. When you get to added value, you have to be able to create it and define it and make it real. And that is some, that's somewhat of where we are as a society that things are being so compressed. And I'm not saying it's true for everyone. In fact, it's an opportunity because it, it's less true now for people under 40 that they can make a pitch, that they can have an impact personally on the phone, Skype or in person, that they can negotiate, that they can learn on the job about a company's strategy, ethos, culture, et cetera. But that quality, that ability has been diminished and reduced, sort of like I've used this analogy years ago. So the so-called most powerful dinosaur ever, the T-Rex, was good at chasing down its prey and enormously strong legs. It didn't really need to worry too much about holding its prey with its arms because it had probably the largest jaws and head of any dinosaur that ever existed. So pretty effective killing machine. So the arms are these tiny little arms, right? And they're useless. And I think that happens to the human brain and psyche when it doesn't fully develop in all its ways. So you've got a big part of the industry that's become the hind legs of the T-Rex, really strong, really good at what it does, enormously effective. Indeed, ZipRecruiter and the rest of them, you know, they have disintermediated a lot of recruiters. But the recruiters who can stay interesting, even at those levels and intuitive and go for those additional subjects that I'm talking about to really understand a client better and a candidate, they will stand out even in that highly commoditized area. So there's hope. And the good news is there's not as many of them as there used to be because everybody had to have those skills 20 years ago or you didn't make any money. You didn't have the technology. Monster was just coming out and you didn't have it. Now you have it. Everybody has it. Everybody has LinkedIn Recruiter. Everybody's using the same stuff. So how in the world are you going to build a career for yourself 
What hope do you have? The hope you have is to become a reader, a thinker, a listener, be intuitive, understand the industries, get outside the box and know why, what makes an industry go, join the organizations, read what's being written about the industries, follow the thought leaders, become one, and you can have a wonderful career and you will stand out like a beacon. I tell this to franchise prospects because of who you are and what you bring to the table. And if you can convey that to the buying public who needs talent, you're going to stand out more than the person that says, you know, I've got a chicken. You want a chicken? I got a chicken. You want a chicken? Great. I got a chicken. Oh, I got a black chicken. I got a white chicken. I got a green chicken. I got a chicken. That is like, okay, all right, you know, I need a chicken. I'll take it. I'm hungry. But if you're talking about serving up a banquet and really become added value to your clients, you got to do more than I got a chicken. You want a chicken? A lot more. And that takes you got to study. You got to be. You talk to Mike Brennan. He can talk to you about Roman history, like you're talking about what happened at Ascot last week. James Kahn's business interests span dozens of industries outside of recruitment. Tony Goodwin goes to those sessions at the Albert Hall and such, where major thinkers of the world are arguing out different propositions, and then people vote on it. I've been to a few of them with him. It has nothing to do with executive recruitment. Has everything to do with the human condition. So, you know, that's the challenge I would say, and really in closing to your listeners be interesting, be somebody, listen, learn, think, read, reflect, be more than just a transactional specialist. Be interesting to your clients, add value, tell them things that are, that are going on in their industry they might not know about, but not in an arrogant way. But just as you develop the relationship, they'll start to look at you more as a trusted advisor and a pain in the ass. <laughs> awesome. That's a great way to finish the show. Thank you, Doug. Listen, we're going to include all your contact information and links in the, in the show notes here. You know, you've got the DBUG at FPCWorldwide.com, right? Yep. And then by the best contact numbers, plus one, four, four, zero, five, two, five, six, one, nine, eight. You know, call me crazy, but I have, I had some young guy in the UK today dig up some old podcast. It was visual with Roy Ripper and the guy just contacted his name's Hutchison just this morning. And he said, this stuff is old, but it's gold. And I said, well, when you get as old as I am, it better be gold. You know, we, we had a little bit of a laugh, but I'll talk to anybody about this stuff as long as I haven't got something right on my plate that I got to deal with. And if someone is thoughtful and they want to talk about where the industry is going or maybe how they can even participate in it with me uh, or without me, I've talked to plenty of people I did not do business with, I can assure you. I'm open to that. I enjoy the interplay and I try in my little way to make the industry a little bit better. Awesome. Thank you so much, sir. I've really, really enjoyed our session together and have an awesome weekend. And I hope we get a chance to do this again sometime. Well, you're very kind. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm pleased that Doug mentioned that the best leaders are well-read and deep thinkers, which allows them to connect on a higher level with CEOs and senior executives they're dealing with as clients and candidates, and allows them to discuss matters not solely pertaining to talent acquisition. Maybe my philosophy degree wasn't a complete waste of time after all. In fact, this is something I've been thinking of for a while, prompted by the rise in popularity of Stoicism. 
an increasing number of my coaching clients are studying Stoic philosophy. And that's not surprising since it speaks directly to our theme of resilience for which I've named this podcast. Stoicism is a system of thought, a school of philosophy that helps us to develop resilience. So I've decided to do a regular feature in the weekly podcast on Stoicism. Currently, I'm reading Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, considered one of the good Roman emperors, if there is such a thing. He was a student of philosophy in the Stoic tradition. He wrote, Our actions may be impeded, but there can be no impeding our intentions or dispositions, because we can accommodate and adapt. The mind adapts and converts to its own purpose the obstacle to our acting. The impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. It's a wonderful mindset for a recruiter to turn obstacles to our benefit, even if that benefit is only to become wiser or stronger or better able to deal with future disappointments and setbacks. So take that thought with you into the day. What stands in the way becomes the way. The impediment to action advances action. I would even consider picking up Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. It's not a page-turner. I'm reading a few pages every day as part of my morning routine and just letting it percolate as I prepare for my day. So please do get in touch. Let me know if you like this idea of having a feature on Stoicism each week as part of the podcast. Let me know maybe if you're already studying Stoicism and if so, what books and resources you've enjoyed most. And do let me know if I've inspired you to look into this for yourself. See you next week. 